Not since flying reindeer have the holidays seen something so amazing. Just in time to make selfie-ready holiday hair easy. Introducing the do-it-all styling tools for glam holiday hair. The holidays are happier with glam hair. And the Not Doctor all-in-one dryer brushes from Conair makes it easy. Detangle, dry, and style in one step. No elf needed. The Not Doctor collection has a dryer brush for every hair type and style. The Pink Smoothing Paddle dryer brush has flexible bristles for painless detangling and high-performance power for quick styling and smooth, shiny results. And the purple dryer brush comes with a bonus volumizing attachment to boost lift and volume at the roots. It's perfect for salon blowouts at home. And since they're ideal for every hair type and length, they make great gifts for everyone on your list who wants beautiful hair without the hassles. Shop the Not Doctor dryer brushes at conair.com or at your favorite retailers now. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. People are terrified of making the same mistakes that we made in psychiatry with same-sex attraction. You know, homosexuality wasn't even taken out of the DSM until the 70s. And then there was like this residual diagnosis about discomfort with your sexuality that was still in there till 1980, I believe. So for good reason, clinicians and doctors and mental health professionals are very careful not to dissuade somebody if that's really truly who they are at their heart. We do not want to harm kids who are just developing and discovering themselves. But what's happening today is kids are conflating having some discomfort around your gender in certain circumstances with the idea that, well, I've always been this way. And so kids will say, you know, it's true that I never was dysphoric as a kid, but it's just because I wasn't thinking about it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I realize that I was dysphoric. Welcome to episode five of the Unspeakable podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is Sasha Ayad. Sasha is a licensed professional counselor who has treated adolescents for more than a decade and whose work focuses on teens and young adults struggling with issues of gender dysphoria and gender identity. Now, if you're familiar with this subject and with some of the discussion around it, you may know that it's become highly divisive among clinicians and even more highly charged within communities of trans activists. In this interview, we talk about some of the reasons for that as well as some of the reasons there's been a dramatic uptick in the numbers of children expressing trans identities in the last few years. On a technical note, I want to say that this interview was recorded back in June when this podcast was effectively in pre-production and I was still figuring things out on the audio quality front. So if you have a picky ear, as I do, please know that this is a process and I'm hoping to get this show sounding pristine before too long. Sasha Ayad, thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, I'm really, really excited about our conversation, especially because I think we read a lot about these issues that we're going to discuss, but we don't hear as often from actual clinicians, people working with actual clients and patients. So 
I was hoping you could just sort of start off by telling us how you got into working with adolescents, um, what's changed over the last couple of years, especially vis-a-vis this gender identity um, situation that we found ourselves in. Just sort of tell us tell us what it's all about. Thanks, Megan. I'm, I'm really glad to be on your show. Thanks for having me. And uh, you hit the nail on the head by lifting up the term gender identity. So I'll get into that. But I've been working with teenagers and adolescents for over 10 years. And before I started working specifically with gender dysphoric kids, I had kind of a broad range of experiences. So I worked with um, victims and uh, survivors of sexual abuse and domestic violence, teenagers as well. I worked with autistic kids. I worked with adults who have intellectual disabilities. And then more recently, I was a middle school counselor at a charter school. And around 2014, while I was working at this school, I started our campus's first GSA or Gay Straight Alliance. And I it was a pretty conservative parent population and I knew some of my middle school kids were questioning their sexuality, so I wanted them to have a place where, you know, they could do that uh, in a way that felt safe and confidential. So during these GSA meetings, what I was noticing is a lot of the teenagers were using terms that I was unfamiliar with as a trained clinician from my graduate program and from all of my work in psychology. So they were saying things like gender identity and non-binary and agender, and they had all of these sexuality labels that I had never heard of before. And at first I thought, well, maybe this is just an evolution of terms, you know, like what I might have called a tomboy, maybe that word is out and non-binary is just a substitute term. But I did get curious. So I went online and started researching this idea of gender identity, and I found a couple of things. First of all, I found news stories and kind of media articles that were very celebratory about transgender children. And these were kind of very hyped up articles about bravery and how great it is for kids to be their authentic self. And that was like this very glamorized version. But then I found on the other side of that, all of these parents concerned parents reporting that their child who had no gender issues as a kid was suddenly announcing a transgender identity around adolescence. These stories were about mostly female kids and a lot of them were coming out in peer clusters. So it would be like a whole friend group of girls identifying as boys within weeks of each other. Or Kids who would spend the summer online, you know, when they weren't in school, they had more downtime and they would spend the summer researching transgender issues, watching YouTube transition timelines that show somebody transforming, you know, over the course of months on testosterone, years on testosterone, and then at the end of summer, kind of coming out to their parents. And in all of these parent reports, people were saying, you know, it sounded very scripted what she said to me about gender identity. She was using all of these words that I think she got from the internet. And, you know, I thought at first, well, this would be fine if this was just an identity exploration, right? Because that is a part of adolescence. But these kids were also making um, kind of demands about things like changing their name at school, wearing a breast binder, getting hormone replacement treatment, and then top surgery, which is mastectomy. And so I I thought, whoa, there's something really important going on here. So the the next thing that really troubled me was um, at this point, I've consulted with about 400 
families. And so I've heard these stories for myself, not just anecdotes on the internet. But what was really troubling was that when parents, um, you know, would take their, for example, autistic daughter to a therapist after she makes this announcement, thinking, okay, well, she'll get properly assessed, they'll try to explore what this means to her and, you know, see if maybe she's conflating like her romantic attraction to girls with gender identity, or just have a proper assessment of what's going on. Clinicians and professionals were just saying, no, you have to agree that your daughter is now your son. I want to actually want to back back up a little bit here, just so we have some context for the population you were actually working in. I, I meant to mention this in my introduction. You are currently based in Houston, Texas. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And yeah. so when you were working at this charter school, I'm assuming it was not necessarily in some hyper-progressive place. It was not in Park Slope, Brooklyn. It was not in Palo Alto. Maybe it was. But can you just sort of tell us sure, where you were? Sure, and sure. also, I'm curious where you were reading these articles that were um, kind of turning this phenomenon into a trend story. Like, I'm trying to think, mm. 2014. So are we talking about like the cover of Time magazine? Like, what do you remember mm-hmm. exactly just mm-hmm. sort of about the media uh, the, the sort of zeitgeist around all of this. When I was working in this charter school uh, here in Houston, you're right. It was not specifically a, a progressive school like some of the uh, schools you see in the Northeast or or even in the, in the West. However, um, the school was starting to take more of a social justice activism angle in the way it thinks about policy and student support and those types of things. Our school was not yet experiencing a lot of kids who are gender dysphoric or questioning their gender. I think at the time, out of 13 campuses, there were maybe four kids who were raising questions about their gender identity. But what I was noticing is that these stories that I was reading online were coming from, well, the positive stories that were really celebratory we're coming from a lot of the mainstream publications. I remember the National Geographic published a, a, a magazine called The Gender Revolution with the, the image of a young um, transgender child on the cover. We were wow. seeing um, some celebrities talk about their trans kids. Um, right. But really, I think there was a lot of discussion of trans issues when um, Caitlyn Jenner came out as trans. So I was seeing these kinds of stories all all over the place and very few mainstream publications were raising thoughtful questions. Um, Even though the clinical population, anyone who's working in the field, when you see numbers like this, like we see an increase in over 4,000% of children seeking help with gender identity issues, any clinician would kind of raise an eyebrow to that. But of course, in the media, we weren't seeing any nuanced pieces until more recently, specifically, I think uh, the Atlantic article that Jesse Singal wrote was a really big um, kind of eye-opener for some people. But back when I was starting to notice, he got a lot of trouble for that, didn't he? Yeah, I was going to say he got a lot of pushback (laughs) for that. And I want to touch on on that side of things in a little bit. But I mean, when you say a rise of 4,000, a 4,000% 4, increase, you're talking over how much time, like from what year to when would you say? So those numbers are not coming out of the US. Those are coming out of the UK. So um, in, in the UK, there's the NHS Gender Identity Service. It's like a centralized 
uh, healthcare service that sees children with gender issues. And so between 2006 and 2016, they saw an increase of over 4,000% in kids under 18 seeking help with gender issues. And the majority of those were teenage girls. Okay. So you're working in the school, you're working with these kids. Are they actually coming to you and talking to you? How is this actually playing out? So I was kind of having these two parallel processes. I was seeing, um, you know, these stories online from parents, but then in my school, a couple of uh, female kids that I knew very well that I had already worked with for several years, they started describing, uh, questioning whether they were girls or not. So again, I was noticing the same thing. When we would talk about these things, they had all of this language, like a brand new lexicon that was definitions and terms and um, what things are transphobic and what things are not transphobic and all of this kind of rhetoric that they were using to try and describe what they experienced as questioning their gender. So what really, um, I started to notice that they may be describing ubiquitous teenage experiences under different terms. So, I mean, I don't know if this was your experience, but when I was a teenager, my body was changing and I felt very uncomfortable with any part of me that signaled I'm female. Yeah. And And actually I was going to ask you, um, (laughs) how you don't have to tell me exactly how old you are, but how old are you roughly? What generation are you part of? How do you, how do you identify generationally? (laughs) I identify as someone who's, I'm at the end of my 30s. I'm 38. Okay. Um, so when I was growing up, because I know you've done a lot of work around generational differences, um, and, and I think that's really interesting because I do see there, there being a lot of generational issues here. But when I was growing up, you know, I didn't have uh, a cell phone. I had a pager when I was in high school, I think, and then, <laughs> then a flip phone. And, you know, right. how much damage can you do And you, you weren't a drug dealer a and you had a pager. Right. <laughs> you never know, Megan. I mean, I might have been dealing drugs. Yeah, you got to um, moonlight somehow. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what what I really realized about working with these kids and having spent a lot of time, you know, listening to how they formulate their issues and how they understand what they're going through is that when they have a, a discomfort, they turn to the internet for answers. Whereas when, when maybe I had a discomfort in my teenage years or you had a discomfort, you either bottle it up or you talk to your friend about it or you journal about it and you have to essentially make sense and make meaning out of it yourself. Sure, we had teen magazines with, you know, silly quizzes of like, you know, answer these questions and we'll tell you what kind of a kid you are. So, and we had similar, you know, ways of trying to make sense of our experience, but we did not have, uh, an outsourcing of our psychological development to the internet. And that is, that so is interesting. What now. And also mm-hmm. when we journaled, we didn't do it on Tumblr, right? We didn't do it online. Exactly. It was private. Nobody was reading it unless our mother was secretly reading it. So yeah, right. we didn't have a right. comment board um, uh, on our own diaries. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, so these kids, they're, they're having a, sort of a, a constellation of identity questions and confusions, and they're going to the internet to seek meaning and answers. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important to, to note is that a lot of times the identity questions come later. 
So in, in my experience, what I see is that kids are, uh, maybe they hear a term. So a lot of times they'll, they'll be like, oh, my friend came out as trans and I, I had never thought of that before. And so I wanted to be a good ally. So I went online and started researching trans. And what, what information you get today about what is, you know, if you were to Google, what is transgender? You're getting a very, very different set of ideas compared to even when I was in grad school, you know, a couple decade or so ago, um, that, that is so broad. And this is kind of like the concept creep that um, Jonathan Haidt and Lukianoff talk about. The, the concept of what it means to be transgender in today's youth culture online is very, very broad. So here are some of the typical things kids will find when they look up, you know, am I trans or what is trans? Only you know if you're transgender. Transgender does not have anything to do with how feminine or masculine you are. Transgender means that you're uncomfortable saying that you are the sex that you are. So think about just those three. I mean, I could share more of the kind of markers, but those three ideas are so broad and almost meaningless. And what I mean by that is if you ask a transgender person who came out and transitioned before the early 2010s, in, in my experience, what you'll find is people who had a very clear understanding of what their dysphoria meant. Their dysphoria meant that ever since they remember they could walk, talk, and breathe, they were pretty certain that there were, their body was the incorrect sex and that they wanted to be something concrete. They wanted to be the opposite sex. But what's happening today is kids are conflating having some discomfort around your gender in certain circumstances with the idea that, well, I've always been this way. And so kids will say, you know, it's true that I never was dysphoric as a kid, but it's just because I wasn't thinking about it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I realize that I was dysphoric. So it, it sounds subtle, but it's really, really important of a distinction. So we've just kind of broadened the category so much. And do we see that sort of um, thought thought process more from natal females, from girls coming in and saying I'm trans than boys? I mean, one of the sort of, you know, w one of the characteristics of what we're calling ROGD or rapid onset gender dysphoria is that we are seeing it more in girls. And I guess, you know, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but it seems like traditionally when we talked about transsexuals, as the term used to be, it was, um, it was far more, there were far more men transitioning to, you know, natal men transitioning to, to female than the other way around. And I have a couple of theories as to why, why that may be, but before I, I submit them to you, what is, um, like, what are the kinds of, like, things that these girls are actually coming in and saying to you? Like typically what goes on at an initial meeting with a client? Like are the parents there? H has the kid come in of her own volition? Like how does it go down? So there's a couple of questions um, packed into there. So yes, you're right about the sex ratio reversal. So prior to about 2007, uh, maybe 2006, most children who develop gender dysphoria or want to change sex are male. And we saw that start to switch around this time. And what I often hear, um, well, kids, 
Parents who contact me, by definition, contact me because they're quite flabbergasted by their daughter's announcement that she's really a boy. So I, I lift that up because I'm guessing there are some families who have always had a pretty masculine daughter. And if she announces trans, maybe they don't feel surprised by it. Now, I still hold reservations there because another thing that we all know, we know this intuitively and we know this scientifically, that many adult gay people and lesbian people question their gender in childhood, especially around puberty. Maybe not outright, maybe not standing up one day and saying, mom, I'm actually a male. But if you talk to adult lesbian women, they will describe really feeling conflicted about being girls. So anyway, people who contact me are parents whose kid was always very kind of typical in her femaleness, um, you know, stereotypes aside, she just never complained about her, her gender. She never really brought it up. So when they hear this trans announcement with a, usually a checklist of, of to-dos that she wants to change her name and cut her hair and bind her breasts and all this, this stuff, they become, of course, quite alarmed. And so they'll go online and research, you know, gender dysphoria or teenager announces trans, and they they will fall into kind of two camps of clinical perspectives. Right now, the American Psychological Association and the American uh, Pediatric, uh, the, the Endocrine Society, all of these large organizations have taken up this idea of affirmation, which is if your child says this, you have to agree with them. So when parents go to a therapist or a doctor or their pediatrician who's known their kid their whole life, they often feel quite surprised when they say, no, well, you have to go along with this or else your child is in danger of, of suicide. So I just want to kind of frame this for anybody who's listening, because um, this is a very unusual time. We've seen things like this happen before in psychiatry with eating disorders that like all of a sudden spread in big numbers. And, um, there have been times when, when we see a certain condition just kind of explode in the population. But to affirm it without assessment is really problematic. So my approach is to do kind of like old school individualized treatment and really assess what is going on for this child. So I'll, I'll just kind of pause there. And I just want to make clear, yeah. wait, so Sasha, I just want to make sure that like our listeners know you are in no way um, denying the existence of trans people. You are not anti-trans. I, I assume that you have worked with kids who are trans and went on to transition and happily so. So let's just make clear, because I think it's really easy to you know, paint for, for certain corners of activism are ready to mm -hmm. sort of paint anybody who questions uh, any part of this kind of uh, approved narrative at this point as transphobic. And that's like completely inaccurate and unfair. So let's just be clear about mm -hmm. that. The parents are not coming to you because you're going to talk their kid out of it necessarily. No, no. The parents are coming to me because they have a feeling of something else is going on. And I think you're, you're right to lift up this question of activism because most trans people that I've met, most people who have successfully transitioned don't find anything that I'm saying controversial. Right. What I'm saying is based in, you know, clinical standards of, of best practices. So my approach is to, first of all, assess the symptom development, the development of dysphoria, and try to understand what it means. 
So, you know, to answer your question about what does it look like when I'm working with a patient, I stay really curious. So I encourage um, kids that I work with to remain curious about what their experience has been with gender, what feels um, comforting or relieving to them about their gender identity, and trying to understand, you know, what this dysphoria can mean in the context of their lives. I don't really challenge kids per se on what they are sharing with me, but I do take it into a holistic picture of everything that was going on in the child's life, in their social relationships, in the context of other mental health conditions that they might have, and trying to help kids resolve other issues while we are staying curious about their identity and what that means. And what are the other issues? Is there a typical cognitive profile of a kid who comes in and says they're trans. I mean, we know that there's some overlap with autism spectrum. Is that is that right? Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? How how do these things get sort of tangled up? Mm-hmm. Um, autism is really overrepresented amongst young people right now who are seeking transition. And again, I think I think using the word trans versus gender dysphoria makes it hard for us to speak accurately about these these cases. So if if you were to say to me, Megan, you know, this is a transgender child, what does that mean? What is the the kind of meaningful uh, understanding we can extract from that? Well, it's really hard to say. First of all, is that a child who's been claiming that they're the opposite sex ever since they were three? You know, is that a child who just started saying that yesterday and threw away their entire closet just, you know, this hour? So the word transgender child creates some sort of confusion because we don't really know what it means. I prefer to talk about kids who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Okay. Because that doesn't preclude us from working with the distress that they're having. And what kind of distress do you tend to see? Like, are there patterns? Is there a certain kind of family structure? Is there, are there certain sort of cognitive traits, interests, even sort of mm-hmm. um, aesthetic predilections? I'm always curious, like, what is the deal with yeah. anime? There's like this <laughs> connection between anime avatars and, um, yeah. uh, you know, sort of non-binary people on social media, mm-hmm. I've noticed. And maybe maybe I'm mm-hmm. just sounding like an old person and I'm not getting the nuances, but maybe you could, (laughs) you could enlighten me. Well, there are a couple of things that I I tend to notice. So many of these kids are dealing with a lot of anxiety. So some of them struggle with social anxiety and maybe don't have that many close relationships with peers in real life. So lots of these kids have developed um, social circles largely based on the internet. And, you know, around that age, Kids are into video games, they're into anime, they're into um, fan art, and there's a lot of playing with fantasy ideas, fantasy images, and, you know, fantasy characters. So I do see that a lot of young kids start to get get enamored by these anime images, which do have some kind of gender-bending characters and characters that play with their gender presentation or their sexuality. So there's a lot of fantasy material, especially among the the anime kids. 
And when it comes to autism, I think part of the reason there's such a high representation of autistic kids here is because there are some traits that um, autistic kids tend to exhibit, such as hyperfixation, you know, getting kind of obsessed with one or two ideas and ruminating on it over and over. Kids on the autism spectrum also struggle with black and white thinking. So understanding nuance and the gray areas of life can be really challenging for them. And they also struggle socially. Um, you know, autistic girls in particular have a bit of a different profile than autistic boys. Right. And you know, historically, we thought, well, autistic boys, they're kind of um, asocial in that they don't really care about friends and that sort of thing. Well, that's not necessarily true. And it's even less true for girls. So autistic girls uh, really, really want to connect with others, but they have a hard time reading social cues and being able to kind of follow the more subtle ways that girls interact. And being a teenage girl, there are so many kind of baffling, subtle rules that are really hard to keep up with. And whether you have autism or not, I think there are lots of young girls who just don't care for, I guess, the quote drama of being a teenage <laughs> girl and some of the kind of petty infighting. And, you know, I hate to say that because it's a stereotype. And we also know that being a teenage girl, you do all of a sudden become subject to these kind of social sabotage behaviors and all of the complexity of, you know, female adolescence. Right. So, but is there, so this is, I'm thinking out loud here, this is really interesting. So, I mean, you sometimes, you know, we, we associate autism with a sort of extreme boyness in a way, a sort of, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, these are stereotypes, sort of, you know, this aloofness, um, lack of interest in socializing or, you know, all the, all the things that you just described. So I can imagine yeah. how if you are a girl and you're on the autism spectrum and you have these traits, you can start to wonder if you're actually a boy because maybe female manifestations, uh, you know, the, the way autism manifests in females is just not something we talk about as much. It's not something we're familiar with. So if you're a girl mm -hmm. and you're sort of you know, falling into these categories, is it easy to just say, well, this is, this must be what it is. I'm actually a boy. And it's because we don't have the vocabulary to actually talk about the spectrum in a, in a, mm -hmm. with enough complexity. I think you're right. Um, well, it's true that kids on the autism spectrum tend to be not really that conforming to gender. Part of it is because um, they're not as good as, at picking up on those kind of subtle social cues of like how girls typically behave or whatever. So we do see a lot of gender nonconformity on autistic girls. But and, I and then is also though, are you saying that's I hadn't thought of that. So is that would you say that's just sort of true across the board? Gender nonconformity on within boys and girls? Yes, but not so much in the way we think about it today. So if, if you were to ask, let's say, a 16-year-old today, what does gender nonconformity mean? They're going to talk about clothing. If you ask somebody from my generation or your generation, we're talking about the spectrum of masculine and feminine behavior, mannerisms, personality traits, how people carry themselves. So okay. there's been a really important shift in concepts and language. And I just want to lift this up because I think... For any, any listeners who may be um, kind of thinking, well, is Sasha saying that people, um, just all these people who have gender dysphoria are 
uh, confused or they're making it up. <laughs> I want to be really, really careful. No, our listeners are smarter than that, but yes, pl- but go okay. do clarify yourself just <laughs> <Okay>. in case. <laughs> okay. So if we were to think about what does the term gender dysphoria mean? What does the term gender identity mean? What does the term transgender mean? I think if we explore that a bit, it will really help us to get a, a, our minds around what is going on right now. So gender dysphoria is the condition that someone experiences a huge disconnect between the sex they want to be or the sex they believe they are and their biological reality. Gender dysphoria typically presents very, very young. It's consistent. It is obvious to anybody in the life of that child because they are making statements about it. They are explicitly calling themselves the other sex. I mean, it's impossible to miss. At least that's the clinical presentation we have data on. That's what we've always known. So gender dysphoria is, of course, a conflict between a person's experience of themselves, which I believe to be, um, you know, genuine. I don't believe this to be, I don't want to call it a mental illness because I don't really think it's exactly that. But there's, there's a fundamental disconnect between what a person's internal sense of self is and what their body is. Now, if a person is experiencing gender dysphoria, one way that they might cope with it is by taking on a public persona as the opposite sex and trying to socially and medically transition to live in that other sex role. Okay. So what I have just said would be very much a non-controversial statement by most trans people, uh, most clinicians who've ever worked with dysphoria. So none of this is controversial. What I'm about to say is the controversial piece. The inclusion of the term gender identity has really muddled the waters. And here's why. Gender identity is a theoretical concept that we've kind of created to try and give a post hoc explanation to a transgender person's experience. So let's say we take that dysphoric child and we follow them through up until adolescence. We know that 65 to 90% of dysphoric children will outgrow their dysphoria and realize that they are, are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and sometimes straight, but more often than not, gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And after puberty, they will feel less dysphoric as they solidify their sexual identity. Okay. But let's say we have that smaller percentage of dysphoric children who do not grow out of their dysphoria. Those are children who historically might start a transition process in their late teens or adulthood years. And they are trying to live in the sex role that they feel themselves to be. So that process involves a social transition, a medical transition. And I think at that point, it's fair to say, once a person has really embarked on this transition process, at that point, it's fair to say, well, this is a transgender person. Mm -hmm. What we don't know using the term transgender is whether or not that person will stay satisfied with their transition. So any clinician who's worked long term with these patients can tell you it's impossible to predict which dysphoric person will continue to benefit from their transition. So that means we kind of have this open-ended, you know, clinical presentation where maybe a person is really happy, they're much more comfortable after transitioning, but for some people, for whatever reason, sometimes that doesn't seem satisfying in the long run. So what's happening, the term gender identity is this theoretical way to try and explain 
the experience of a transgender person. So we're now mm-hmm. saying, well, actually, the whole time, they just had a different gender identity. Rather than saying this is an individual who's treating their dysphoria. Mm. And that is really confusing because if you say, well, this person has always had a a female uh, gender identity, then that means even when this was a three-year-old boy, he was actually a female. When he was a five-year-old boy, he was actually female. And now he's maybe a 30-year-old transitioned woman and now he's female and looks very female. But if you say that the gender identity has always been true at every single point, then we are now in the territory of treating gender identity issues, trans issues, the same exact way as we would treat homosexuality. And is this, has this come about because of the nature of the activism um, around the trans movement? Is it because what you have just summed up, I mean, it's, you, you did so very concisely and it's clear to me, but it's a little bit complicated and it's the kind of thing that's hard to sum up in a hashtag or in, in a, in a slogan or in one sentence or, you know, the nature of activism is that you have very clear messages um, that are powerful Mm -hmm. and sort of be by the collar sometimes. So what, what do you make of the sort of sensibility around the, the trans activism? Because, um, you know, (laughs) I was thinking earlier, you know, the, there's, you know, the, the, the in-group, you know, the, the sort of, you know, social drama of just, you know, regular uh, girlhood is, is, is bad enough. But I think that, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of what we see in, in trans activism is, you know, beyond that by order of magnitude. So can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what you've seen in that realm? Sure. It's, it's been really interesting to watch um, so many establishments that are are meant to treat mental health conditions and, and medical conditions taken over by an activist narrative. It's really been something for, for me to see in my in my young time as a clinician. But it's really impossible to think about gender dysphoria, the condition, without feeling a lot of intensity around it. Because if you imagine what it might be like to really feel like your body's incorrect, that is a distressing experience. Yeah. So I think part of the, the, the narrative that activists are pushing is meant to sanitize the discomfort of gender dysphoria. Mm. So if they, if they can just say, well, no, it's just a type of gender variance like everything else and just like how there are people with different sexual orientations. This is just a wonderful, beautiful part of the rainbow. It just makes it a lot more palatable and people don't have to think about how distressing it might feel to experience gender dysphoria. I I think that is part of the, the reason behind this push. I also think for the much bigger portion of, of people who are yelling online with hashtags, They've just been captured by this very dogmatic idea that there's only one correct opinion to have here. And there's so much hyperbolic language around this discussion. There are a lot of, um, you know, words are literal violence. And if you say this, you're literally killing trans people. And just so much um, inflammatory messaging around this that people don't really feel they can speak up. I mean... There are researchers and clinicians who have been uh, just blasted for asking really good uh, clinical questions, 
Um, Dr. Lisa Lippman, who published her research on rapid onset gender dysphoria, had just a huge kind of campaign against her paper and it got um, pulled back and then reviewed again. And so even the, the clinicians who worked for decades in this field, like people like Dr. Ken Zucker and yeah. um, Ray Blanchard and Bailey, and they have been attacked and pushed out of, of their own fields, essentially. So it's not surprising that it, things have gotten ramped up really fast when even the most um, educated clinicians are not allowed a voice in this debate. And what goes on in the offices of those clinicians who are sort of going along with this party line? I mean, we hear stories about kids getting access to hormone therapy, getting testosterone, for example, without their parents' knowledge sometimes? Is that even mm -hmm. possible? And if so, what is the scenario there? I think people would have a really hard time believing what happens. And, and a lot of times we see on social media, you know, clinicians like myself or colleagues will raise these concerns and people who consider themselves allies or kind of activists will say, that's not true. You have to be thoroughly assessed to get testosterone. But Unfortunately, that isn't the case at all. So if, if I were to give you kind of a typical example of a teenager, if they, if they go to a very liberal um, school that has a policy in place that is meant to protect, um, I think it's meant to protect LGBT kids from abuse at home, which is, of course, a really noble aim, but ultimately it, it really causes problems. So if a kid is starting to question their gender identity at school. They tell their teachers and they might say, you know, please don't tell my parents. So a kid in freshman year technically could start going by a different name at school and be called the opposite gender uh, for four years and the parents may not know. Or kids can um, go to informed consent clinics. There are some clinics um, where they can sign a waiver to basically like emancipate themselves from needing parental consent in some cases. The kids and can do this when they the go same. into the, the clinic. And is this a, like a gender clinic specifically or any kind of clinic? Like could they get birth control that way? Other things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is not all clinics, but these, I believe in the same clinics that would allow a kid to get a birth control prescription operates in the same manner and they can get hormones. Now, most often I'm not seeing things like that happen. I've only heard of a few cases where a, a minor is getting hormones without their parents' approval. However, um, with a parental uh, accompaniment to a gender clinic, families are essentially told, you know, your child is dysphoric, but it, they're not going to assess their background. They're not going to look into any trauma. So, for example, if a child has been uh, sexually abused and very recently started to feel uncomfortable in her female body, clinics feel as though that is completely unrelated to the dysphoria. So they're going to encourage parents to send them down this medical pathway and tell families that, you know, if you don't go along with this, your child is going to be at risk of killing themselves. So it's, it's, it's not so much that kids are going behind their parents' backs and getting hormones. I think it's that the entire process of identity development is not really being explored in a way that considers other factors or other underlying issues or just the, the fact that kids are 
kind of steeping themselves in certain online materials. And that's where they're getting their gender dysphoria or their new identity. And to me, that is really concerning because we know that adolescents are in a stage of life where they're looking for identity and they're looking for peer acceptance and they're looking to kind of question norms. So to say that everything we know about adolescents somehow just gets completely suspended uh, in this population, it just doesn't make sense. And I think it needs to be explored. It's extraordinary. I mean, I don't know how else to ask this question. I mean, I'll just put it out there. Who are these clinicians? Who are these therapists? Do they go to certain kinds of uh, schools? Do they go? Do they have a particular kind of education? Do they belong to certain certain kind of like you know I- institutes? Like where do they come from? And and how many of them are there? <laughs> it seems like there are, there are more of them than there are of you at this point. Much more. Um, I think what what typically happens though is that. The, the kids are referred to gender clinics. So the first gender clinic opened in the U.S. in 2007. There was one. And now there are like 65 youth gender clinics in the U.S. So that is a, a huge proliferation of uh, these medical and mental health clinics that operate based on a philosophy of innate gender identity. So there have been um, a few kind of key clinicians who are creating training programs and materials. There are organizations like Gender Spectrum and Gender Infinity that are creating these training materials and then going out and training uh, school counselors. Like when I was working at that charter school, really my impetus for um, kind of raising a red flag there was receiving a training uh, by a, a advocacy group that came in to talk to us about gender identity. And Mm. I raised a lot of questions during that training, because at that point, I had already been reading research from, you know, clinicians who have worked with gender dysphoric kids, and really like scientific literature and psychological literature. And what I realized is that this theory of gender identity, which is it's really taken over medical and mental health care, was so um, unscientific and unpsychological that I I was in this training asking all these questions and raising my concerns and people were really kind of surprised that I was pushing back against the the narrative but these people these meaning other teachers are the other the other counselors I mean I think the people other were like saying oh yeah that is a good point Sasha like I, I had some people were who were engaged but again I think I think people are terrified of making the same mistakes that we made in psychiatry with same-sex attraction. You know, homosexuality wasn't even taken out of the DSM until the 70s. And then there was like this residual diagnosis about discomfort with your sexuality that was still in there till 1980, I believe. So for good reason, clinicians and doctors and mental health professionals are very careful not to dissuade somebody if that's really truly who they are at their heart. We do not want to harm kids who are just developing and discovering themselves. So I think that's the reason why so many organizations have been receptive to this philosophy of of innate gender identity. Um, And there are, you know, uh, activist doctors who have millions of dollars of grant money to to study this. Um, in, in California, there are several huge uh, medical systems and university health systems that have adopted this and, and are researching this. And 
you know, I think most people I talk to, Megan, share some of our very kind of rational concerns and, and our awareness that, you know, kids are in flux. Teenagers are developing identity. We should slow things down. The average person agrees with that. Parents who have been through some of these big hospitals that are running these gender identity clinics, you know, the stories I hear from them make me really concerned because even if they bring their child who's quite young, the the advice that they're given is that you have to continue pushing the gender identity, even if the child changes their mind or even if the child feels unsure. Even if the child feels unsure, because now it's turned in, it's it's taken on a life of its own. And it's this sort right. of suicide threat has been weaponized, right? among other threats. Exactly. So to answer your question about, you know, who are these clinicians, I think there are a, a handful of activist clinicians who are really pushing this theory and not only pushing the theory, but advocating for younger and younger transition. And they are essentially kind of creating training programs and working their way into these major medical establishments and and mental health organizations to solidify that the affirmative model is the only way to treat these kids. And there's been a lot of pushback. I mean, we can get to this later, but if, if you're following what's happening in the UK, as we could predict, this affirmation model is not the best way to approach young children. These clinicians that you're talking about, do they really think that this is so prevalent that it's completely logical that there might be four kids in any given classroom who are transgender? Um, Because that's so out of bounds with any sort of logical assumption or or premise. Do they think that this is something that's, that's been, you know, part of Mm -hmm. human life for, for millennia and we're only now realizing it and accepting it? Like how, how does their logic play out? I, I really find it hard to get inside the mind of these activist clinicians because for me, it seems so outside the realm of possibility that, you know, 30%, 30%, like uh, talk to a family where 30% of the girls in the school identified as boys. <laughs> However, I, I have to, I have to, I have to believe what the activist clinicians are saying. They are essentially saying that if a child, uh, I mean, there's a clinician who says, you know, if a child is pulling barrettes out of her hair, that is a, a gendered, um, a gendered communication as a baby that she really may be a boy. I, pulling the bow out, out of her of hair of the, as as an infant yeah. coming home from the hospital as an infant mm-hmm. so um that is i mean patently a ridiculous proposition but there's really a belief they have a, a truly ingrained belief that gender is just everywhere and all of our behaviors communications um, language, our, our personality traits are somehow gender related. So if you make gender the center of everything, you will see it everywhere. And I really think that is what's happened. Um, it's, it's interesting because when you look at like the multiple personality disorder epidemic a few decades ago, it has some similar traits. It's, it's non-verifiable, right? So you cannot do a blood test or a brain scan to tell if somebody is going to benefit from transition. Mm-hmm. There's no like test for trans. 
You can self-diagnose and develop discomfort kind of on your own from reading about it. So this is what happened with MPD. Uh, the book Sybil was published. And I was going to say, sudden, how much did Sybil have to do with, with that? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I've started to, I mean, in my, my own attempt to understand what I was seeing in my clinical population, I've had to really think outside of the bounds of, you know, what is gender dysphoria. I've really had to understand what is going on in our, our broader culture that there's thousands of girls out of the blue developing these symptoms. And I, I do think there's so many parallels with multiple personality disorder. There's wow. also interesting to me that with multiple personalities, there were some people claiming to have hundreds of personalities. Right. And here we are with the gender identity theory. There are some people that claim there are hundreds and hundreds of genders. Now, I'm obviously not trying to map those two things together with some kind of conspiracy theory like, oh, Eureka, you know. However, <laughs> when you have a completely nebulous definition for something like gender identity, it's very easy for this to spin out of control. Yeah. And I want to go back for a second to seeing the world, seeing everything through the lens of gender, because you know this is something that I've talked about a lot, but I'd be curious to sort of talk about it in this context. So, you know, I grew up, I'm about 10 years older than you. I grew up in the seventies. I was a teenager in the eighties. And, you know, it, at that time, being a, being a girl in the seventies, being a tomboy was cool. That's what you wanted to be. Being a girly yeah. girl was like uncool. So like, if you were one of those girls that wore, you know, frilly dresses and patent leather shoes, you were Nellie Olson, right? From Little House on the Prairie. I'm really <laughs> dating myself. <laughs> like Nobody wanted to be <laughs> Nellie Olson. They wanted to be Laura, who was like a real tomboy. Um, and, you know, yeah. I always, you know, I've said, like, you look back, who were the the biggest female child celebrities of the seventies, it was Jodie Foster in film and Christy McNichol in television. And they both are now out lesbians. And so there was a sort of, you know, they were definitely yeah. girls, but they were, they were little girls, but there was a sort of androgynous quality to them. There was something about being a kid, I think male or female in the seventies that it wasn't so much about boys and girls. It was just about being a kid. Like, I'm sure you've yes. looked at this, even like, you know, the toy aisles at that time, you go into a toy store and there wasn't like the pink section and the blue section, the way you see at Walmart. Now, everyone mm -hmm. just kind of played with blocks and um, you did not have this, you know, this sort of gender essentialism as it would be called now at that time. Yes. So I think for me growing up at that time, it was a real gift because I never associated um, any particular behavior with being um, out of out of bounds with with being female. I just thought, well, I'm I'm this kind of female, and I actually also think that um, you know up until recently, if you were if you were a girl or a woman, there was a much wider range of ways that you could present. You know, women could wear pants or dresses, and you could be kind of you know athletic or masculine. And that was actually cool. And there was something sexy about that. Like I always felt like, yes. you know, there was a much larger window of presentation for, for females than for males. But I don't know, sometime in the nineties, suddenly everything was like the Disney princess aesthetic mm -hmm. and stuff got really narrowed, I think, in terms of gender expression. And I wonder if some of what we're seeing now in terms of the dysphoria it, is an outgrowth of that. Oh, 100%. So you're essentially talking about 
the girl who isn't girly and thinks that's really cool, you know, not wanting to be a hyper frilly girly girl. And this is what I hear a lot from young people, especially those who are a little bit older. I mean, we also see a huge number of kids detransitioning now. And when they reflect back on their experiences, they often will share stuff like that, you know, that they, they thought it wasn't cool to be uh, very girly and it was way cooler to be a trans guy than just some nerdy, regular old girl. Ugh. So I think, I mean, Megan, when, when I, when I first started to, to, to research what's going on, I felt quite disconnected from it. But the more I meet with these young people, the more I realize this would have been me. I would right. have been one of these kids. And what I, what I really want people to understand is that growing up as a teenage girl is really hard. There's so much pressure to look a certain way and to fit in a certain way. And of course, there are special pressures boys face too. I'm not saying that only girls have hard time. But when you're a teenage girl and you are also on Instagram and you have all of these hyper feminine, like very sexualized female kind of role models, and you're really trying to figure out where your place is, it's very easy to read the kind of concept of gender identity and this whole gender spectrum and to say, well, if I don't like this super girly persona, I might not be a girl after all. And a lot of times kids who start questioning their gender, you know, they'll, they'll be looking at these materials online and looking at the gender spectrum and they'll, they'll say, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm a boy, but I just know I'm not a girl. And what they ultimately mean by that is, I know I'm not this incredibly uh, pretty, beautiful princess, kind of happy-go-lucky, smiling all the time, also sexually down for whatever, girl. So do you have conversations with your clients about this? Are you able to even kind of hash this out in, in this sort of way? Or are they even capable of conceiving what it, what it, what the possibilities are for being a girl? Well, I, I think what ultimately I try to do is I try to understand that there's a need here that they're trying to meet through this identity. So for example, if they are feeling um, very vulnerable to the kind of sexualized attention that they don't want, you know, we talk about that feeling of being Um, you know, unprotected or wanting to kind of shelter yourself from those experiences. And we just explore that together. And sometimes that opens up, again, a little more curiosity about, you know, how does presenting as a boy make you feel different? I'm, it's hard to tell kids, you know, this is hard to believe, but when I was your age, this and this and this. Um, Right. But we we do discuss the fact that being uh, comfortable with all of these very gendered norms is not an inherent part of being female. So I just try to help uh, young patients understand that being uncomfortable is a natural response to something that maybe feels cringy to you. It doesn't mean you are born incorrectly. I may not use that exact terminology, but you know, this is another problem that I have with, with a lot of aspects of the gender identity theory is that if you're uncomfortable, it means you're in the wrong box. And we know that's not true because anyone right. who's ever tried to grow up has felt a lot of gender-based discomfort. 
which again, it's different from someone who's had a pervasive sense of dysphoria since they were very young. These are kids who I believe are interpreting pretty normal teenage discomfort with gender dysphoria. And does this sort of speak to these larger discussions? Jonathan Haidt, you know, talks about this a lot, just the sort of discomfort with discomfort that we see in these generations with, for whatever reason, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, parental, you know, parenting approaches or being medicated, sort of being in therapy, you know, since you're three years old, if there's, you know, we're sort of pathologizing normal, um, bad feelings and, and discomfort that we all have. Do you, is that sort of playing into this? A hundred percent. I mean, I think kids are primed to be searching for what is wrong and finding a label for it and trying to resolve it really quickly rather than making space for the, the discomfort of life. Um, I know a lot of these kids have, of course, really well-meaning parents, but many of them have had very, very kind of sheltered and safe lives. Not always, you know, like my my population represents like a certain slice of the parents who are going to contact a therapist in private practice. I'm not saying this is true across the board, but, you know, I do think a lot of kids today have have the idea that life should always be pretty comfortable, aside from academic stress, which they are almost perpetually in a state of panic about. But there, there is this kind of obsession with um, self-diagnosis and trying to figure out what like mental health condition you have or what your problem is. And I, I think that really doesn't serve young people who are trying to develop kind of more of an innate sense of resilience and, you know, problem solving skills. I don't think it's helpful. And I think you're right. It has a lot to do with the discomfort with being uncomfortable. I'm wondering, in any any one of these activists, I feel like there's probably a constellation of mental health issues, trauma in the past, um, any number of challenges, and gender dysphoria, trans identification is maybe just one of them. Um, but somehow what's coming across in the activism has less to do with anything having to do with with gender or trans, but just sort of, um, just like discomfort and outrage and upsetness in general. So the activism really has to do with some whole other sort of presentation of, I don't know what the word would be, like upsetness. It's just, it, it's its own thing. And for some reason it has been assigned to the, the, the gender discussion and advocating for trans people when it's really not doing that at all. So I, I guess that's just sort of a um, kind of circuitous, maybe avoidant way of asking, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> what? Why are they so, um, I, I'll just say it, unhinged, a lot of them, and just mm. allergic to logic and, and so unwilling to um, take in any kind of uh, dissenting opinion. I mean, it really does feel like a religion. Beyond that, it, it feels cultish. I, I hate to put it in such um, blunt terms, but but I will. It's, it's, it's a really good question. I think there are probably different kind of tiers of activists. You know, you have the, the casual 15-year-old who is on Twitter just calling everybody a turf that maybe doesn't have any power to uh, impact legislation or mental health guidelines or things like that. Right. And the turf is. Then you explain to us what a, a turf trans, is. It, uh, okay, so 
a TERF, the acronym is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. I think this term originally came up when some radical feminists, which the word radical is meant to denote that they are looking at the roots of a problem, right? Not that they're just crazy. <laughs> um, right. So there, there's a certain branch of feminism that says, no, actually, biological sex is the reason that women have been oppressed and therefore transgender woman who is a male who identifies as a woman does not get the same access to sex-based uh, spaces or sex-based rights that women get. And I would think most secular feminists would fall into that category. Jermaine Greer has been one of the most outspoken in this, in this sphere, but I would think, I would think just about any of the women on uh, Mrs. America, if anyone's been watching the Hulu series (laughs) would, uh, would be TERFs (laughs) if pressed, which they wouldn't have been. Okay. But the the term turf, I mean, it is a slur um, and I think it's expanded. So now people will call you a turf basically if you ask the wrong questions about trans issues. So it's really been bl- the, another category blowout, right? I think that is like the theme of the day. Let's blow out all the categories. But anybody can be called a turf if they ask the wrong kind of questions. So someone like J.K. Rowling, for example, of course, is now like probably the most famous turf. But all kinds of people can <laughs> the be richest, considered sir, turf. For sure, right? yes. And I've seen trans people called TERFs who just have a different opinion <laughs> or are asking important questions. So, uh, I mean, there, there's so much absolute ridiculousness in the way um, this kind of all activism online works right now that people from the category can be called someone who is anti that category. So a trans person who is anti-trans, apparently. Um, that's what the word TERF means. Um, but to to go back to your question about these these activists online, I think one way we can look at this is that if you are if you are a person who has adopted this idea of of gender identity and you are claiming to be in a different category, you you also have bought into this idea that biological sex is not real. So this is the new kind of frontier of trans activism trying to. Uh, flatten the distinctions between biological male and biological female. It's really important to understand that if we were to try and figure out why some of these activists are so intense. So when you flatten male and female into some kind of a sex spectrum, which any, any serious scientist and anybody who's been on earth for more than five minutes can probably tell you, we know biological sex is real. The fact that we're debating that is kind of crazy. But if you are a person who has uh, kind of adopted a different identity and you don't want to acknowledge that actually, you know, if I am a transgender woman, I am actually different from a biological woman. And if you're very insecure in your ability to call yourself a woman, you really have to shout down anybody who points out the biological reality of sex or who asks important questions about protecting transgender women while also protecting biological women. I mean, so a whole slew of very reasonable concerns has to be dismissed if an individual person is insecure in their chosen identity. And I think that's part of the reason we see what you're kind of describing is like, what is wrong with these activists or what's the mental health issue behind this? And I do believe part of it is a feeling like they need to validate 
their authenticity as a woman by basically turning all of reality into a fantasy. Right. And I think that, you know, we need to be careful. People on Twitter may be the loudest, but they're not most people. So I think that there might be some causation versus correlation. You know, if you're on Twitter yelling, that would probably correlate with not being secure in your identity as well as a number right. and any number of other things. So, so yeah, but I most, just, you most know. trans people I've met just want to kind of live their lives in peace and are very cognizant of, you know, trying to um, kind of blend in with the gender identity that they feel they are. And I do not think Twitter activists in any way represent the most common kind of perspectives of, of trans people or even of trans allies. I mean, they're just right. such a, a, a loud and boisterous presence on social media that it creates this illusion that all people who are part of LGBT are radical activists, which just it's just not true. But the problem is the institutions are taking their cues from this activism, this the school curriculum, the you know, the the the, the training that you had to participate in. I mean, why is that? The the activists seem to be setting the tone. For a, lot, a lot of people in charge are paying close attention. Yeah. But I think there's also activist academics and they're not exactly screaming on Twitter, though right. they are, um, you know, publishing research that really kind of misrepresents even their own data. They are making mm-hmm exaggerated statements, for example, about like suicide risk and suicide statistics. And they're doing this, you know, under the guise of being reputable academics. But when, when even someone with kind of a basic statistics, uh, you know, understanding takes a look at some of these papers, they see there's serious, serious flaws, and they don't actually represent the, the data in an in a way that is clear or accurate or honest. So I think we have a combination of, you know, loud voices on Twitter. And I think those people essentially scare um, the average person from sharing a thought or sharing an opinion, and they right. create the illusion that there's a consensus. And then, of course, you also have active, activist academics and activist clinicians and activist doctors who are really taking over the narrative and actively trying to get dissenting voices shut down. And I, I just think it's interesting to point out that these, quote, dissenting voices like my voice or Dr. Ken Zucker's or any of the um, kind of pioneers, these were, you know, people whose opinions would have been considered incredibly progressive just like seven or eight years ago. Oh, absolutely. Radical even. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how is it that they've been allowed to take over like this? What is the actual, uh, what, what is the process of somebody who, uh, dissents getting shut down? They don't get tenure, they get fired, they get, ostracized within the community? I mean, what actually happens um, within academic and research circles that that has allowed this particular cohort to dominate? Well, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm not a researcher. So I think there are other people who can speak, um, you know, more eloquently about this. But I do know that some of the big organizations like WPATH, for example, um, they have really discouraged dissenting voices and they've really adopted a stance of like no debate. You know, it's kind of like what's happening with 
uh, other other social questions of the day, you know, if you if you ask a question or if you raise a concern, you are accused of some kind of phobia, and that really does end up shutting down the debate. And I think when you know, if you were to take uh, let's say a, a younger clinician who wanted to learn more about trans issues and they go to one of these conferences and they see that tone and they see the uh, really intensity of of dogma, they're going to be terrified to ask questions or think more carefully about this. And I think a great example is what's what's happening in the UK at the Gender Identity Service there. So there was a report created by... Um, Dr. David Bell, uh, with several clinicians from the service who had worked there for extended periods of time, discussing how their concerns about child safeguarding were either dismissed or um, not taken seriously. And many clinicians resigned, I think like 35 clinicians resigned from the, the gender identity service there. This is the Tavistock that, you know, clinic you're talking the about? Tavistock, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and they were saying, you know, I, I think we are medicating gay kids. I think we are medicating autistic children. And when they brought their concerns to um, their superiors, they were essentially told, you know, not to look into it or not to explore it with the safety officer. So there seems to be um, this attitude of dogmatism whenever we see uh, transgender medicine since the last, you know, decade or so. And I, I don't really understand how we're supposed to effectively assess and treat patients if this is the attitude of the, the big organizations who are supposedly the leaders in, you know, childhood uh, gender issues. Well, it's so extraordinary because it seems there's no precedent for this, really. I mean, we can talk about the multiple personality disorder hysteria. We can talk about the recovered memory uh, yes. syndrome stuff that was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. But that, you know, there was damage done there, but the damage was like, I'm going to accuse uh, this this relative of having, uh, you know, raped me repeatedly when I was a child and, and blocked it out. And then it turns out that didn't happen after all. That's a terrible thing, but that doesn't compare to cutting off parts of your body and, and giving, you know, medical treatment to, to children that is not necessarily warranted. I mean, is there any sort of analogy you can think of to, to any other kind of, you know, occurrence in, in medicine or, or psychology in, in history? Well, I mean, we have, we have cases of uh, lobotomy attempting to quote unquote cure people who have same sex attraction. So right, gay and lesbian right. people have been subjected to some horrific uh, medical experimentation. Um, but I think on this scale, with this level of dogmatism, I, I cannot think of anything comparable. And um, it's it's really important to keep something else in mind. Identity is something that is formed um, in a cyclical manner, not just between you and your internal sense of self, but also you and the outside world. So you you brought up this idea of um, surgeries and these medical treatments and the possibility of someone changing their mind. Well, what happens when a person transitioned at thirteen, let's say a female? And she, at 22, 
starts to think back about her childhood or her trauma and realizes that this was a big mistake, she now looks essentially like a man. Yeah. And so if she wants to detransition and try to regain her identity as a woman, she's not only having to cope with like the entire seven years of, of her life where she's lived, quote, as a guy, but she now has to navigate the world looking one way, but actually feeling a different way on the inside. So it's like a reverse version of gender dysphoria. Yeah. So the, the medical implications of this are so incredibly serious, not just because of the elevated risk of heart attack and all of the complications that can come along with it, but also what does this do to one's sense of identity when your outside is now completely transformed and you feel like that's wrong? It's so it's so tricky because, I mean, there is a level I, I can imagine. I mean, for instance, I can imagine being a boy, like a young boy who feels that I'm a girl really strongly and wanting to start medical transition and being absolutely aware of the clock ticking and terrified of hitting puberty and sort of getting past the point of no return when it comes to passing. I mean, you know, you transition mm-hmm. before puberty, you're going to have a lot cosmetically anyway, more successful outcome than if you wait. I can, I can sort of, you know, I guess the teenage girl in me who's, you know, sort of terrified of my own, uh, you know, changing body relates to that kind of um, mindset, especially in, you know, if it's a, if it's a male wanting to transition mm-hmm. to female, but no, I, I absolutely, um, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, do you think there are going to be lawsuits down the road with this? Are we going to, you know, a a decade or so from now, see a a slew of people, you know, going back to, I don't know, sue the, sue the clinics, sue the, the doctors because these decisions were made? A hundred percent. I mean, we already see that um, there's a young woman who was treated at the Tavistock Gids who, uh, is is also in proceedings right now and they're looking at changing the um, age at which you can medically transition a child and i think in the u.s we are going to see a very similar thing that the clinics are operating based on an informed consent model which means that you know as long as a young person has their parents consent and they are told about the side effects even at you know 15 or 16 then technically they are able to uh, consent to these treatments. And, you know, I don't know how we have squared that with medical ethics or with the idea of, you know, do no harm. But I do think that there are going to be lawsuits. I think what, what makes me concerned is I see this moving in the direction of a cosmetic procedure. That's what informed consent feels like to me on kind of a visceral level from hearing enough stories. It feels like a cosmetic kind of venture. So if, if it is framed that way, which, you know, some, some of the trans activists actually explicitly say, you know, you shouldn't have to have gender dysphoria to medically transition. That should be your choice. And, you know, for, for adults who, who understand what they're getting themselves into and they understand the side effects, I actually don't. I don't know if that's that big of of a problem, if you really believe that, though I don't think we should ever think to apply that to children. Um, But I I do see this as being um, very cosmetic and even some of the kind of leading 
activist clinicians that I've mentioned to you, Megan, they say, you know, for non-binary kids, sometimes they just want a slightly masculinizing effect. So just a little bit of T, which is short for testosterone. So to me, that looks a lot like plastic surgeons or cosmetic, you know, aesthetic only medical procedures. So I'm really concerned about that because we are also, again, divorcing it from a condition that is inherently distressing that requires, you know, treatment to help the person feel better. Uh, this is now kind of like, well, it's a consumer-based, um, you know, whatever the customer wants is great, and we should just give them the medication if they would like whatever uh, aesthetic effect it will have. Wow, on them. sort of a made-to-order sort of model. You know, yeah. there's another kind of angle to this that's really dark. I mean, I think, you know, we think about these parents and these families, we think of this, you know, sort of in terms of like a, you know, kind of hyper progressive uh, worldview. But I mean, there are, there are parents who don't want their kid to be gay. uh, And when confronted with this choice, would opt for um, gender transition rather than to have a gay kid. I don't know how common it is, but I think it's not unheard of. And I feel like, I mean, maybe you know this better than me. This could be wrong. I feel like I read a statistic like Iran or some some country like Iran has the highest number of um, of gender transition surgeries in the world. And, you know, it's not because it's so progressive. It's because, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. illegal to be homosexual. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I, I mean, is that something that you've run into? Well, people who contact me are... are- typically very comfortable with the idea that their kid may be gay. And that's why they actually want them to be careful and make sure that their gender dysphoria is not, you know, internalized issues with their sexuality. But I do know from, from reading um, reports coming out of the UK and even some of the clinics in the U S there are parents who are more comfortable having essentially what is a very gender conforming trans kid than a non-conforming gay kid who is going to date, you know, same-sex people. I'm sure that this is happening. And again, that's kind of the problem with this whole theory of gender identity is that it, it it's inherently going to trample on healthy sexuality development. This may seem like a little bit of a sideways question, but since I have you, I can't help but ask it we, we know this is a social contagion in terms of popping up in clusters and school groups, peer groups, but does this run in families at all? I can think of a few examples of families where a parent transitioned and then a child either transitioned or started identifying as non-binary. Um, is that something you've run across? Yes, I have. Um, I've seen uh, the social contagion spread across siblings. Mm. I've also not personally worked with families like this, but I know of families where um, a parent starts questioning their identity or kind of introduces the idea of gender identity into the family. And then, ah, lo and behold, you know, a bunch of their kids are also transgender. So, um, again, that's why I try to distinguish this from organic gender dysphoria. I think you can um, make a really clear distinction between somebody whose gender dysphoria just emerges on its own versus somebody who learns about the concept of gender identity and then um, starts to question their gender for the first time. So it, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if a parent is 
questioning their own gender and researching this concept that um, if they, uh, you know, teach it to their children or apply it to other kids in their lives that, you know, they might read that gendered behavior. So if they have a daughter who really likes to play soccer, they might kind of bank that in their mind and say, hmm, I wonder if my daughter's, you know, transmasculine or something. Or if the parent is happy. I mean, the, the cases I'm thinking of, the parent transitioned um, at a later age in middle age or something and is really happy about it and thriving and in some cases still married to the original spouse and the family's intact. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, why not? What a, what a great example. And maybe that, maybe it, it, it is right for the child to transition. I'm not, I, who, I don't know one way or the other, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's something I've, I've noticed. Um, so yeah. I guess to wrap this up, where do you see this all going? Is this a sort of uh, cultural spasm? What, what kind of legs do you think this, this all has? Are we going to still be having this conversation in, in 10 years, 15 years? That's hard to say. Um, I, I know that in the time that I've been working around this issue, I've seen a huge number of um, young people detransitioning and starting to share their stories. I've also seen more and more clinicians and doctors and, and teachers and professionals uh, also kind of taking note of what they're seeing in their client populations and starting to speak about their experiences and raise their concerns. So I, I think that we're, I think we're kind of at some sort of a tipping point. Um, it's really hard to ignore stories of detransition and of young people who, in their own words, feel really harmed by the affirmation model that really pushed them through the process quickly. So I, I think these stories are going to have an impact on public perception about affirmative care and hopefully will um, cause clinicians and, and doctors to really pump the brakes when they make treatment recommendations for dysphoric kids. So my last question has to do with the fact that at one point this show was going to be called The Problem With Everything. It's now called The Unspeakable, but it was called The Problem With Everything for a while. Uh, and yeah. I, uh, I ended every show by, by asking my guests what they really think is the main problem with the world. What is the problem with everything? What is the thing that we do to screw up our lives or, or just sort of get things wrong? And you can answer this in the context of the subjects that we've been talking about or, or just more broadly. Um, what mm. is sort of the root cause of, of our distress? Oh, this is such a great question. Um, well, I have really come to believe that a major cause of our distress is our disconnection from the physical body and physical reality. I think we spend so much time fully immersed into two-dimensional online worlds that cause us to be completely cerebral and up in our heads all the time. And we forget that beyond the world of thoughts and ideas and language, there is a three-dimensional reality that is interesting and gives us valuable experiences and can teach us a lot about how to be in the world in a way that is not purely intellectual. So I think getting off screens and into the real world and being connected with people in 3D and being connected with our bodies and and physical movement and in a kind of compassionate way towards ourselves 
is really sorely needed. Sasha, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. It's been, it's been really interesting and um, I appreciate your work and your insights and, and you're taking the time. Thank you, Megan. It was really great to talk with you. That was my interview with licensed professional counselor, Sasha Ayad, recorded on June 25th of this year. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com and you can listen there too. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the guests very soon on the website and on all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.